Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics Chat. Today I'm talking to Jeffrey Schiebinger. Hi, uh, Roman. Hi, Jeffrey. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me here. It's an honor. Uh, yeah, great to have you. So you recently, with your colleagues, released a preprint. It is titled Reconstruction of Developmental Landscapes by Optimal Transport Analysis of Single-Cell Gene Expression Sheds Light on Cellular Reprogramming. That's right. Yeah, this this is what I'd love to discuss with you. Uh, but before we get to that, can you talk a little bit about your background? Great. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I come from a PhD program in theoretical statistics, and this is my kind of first uh, experience in biology. Uh, so it's been a kind of uh, trial by fire, you know, it's, it's a very intense experience, <laughs> um, you know, very different from what I did in, during my PhD. So my background is more um, in like very theoretical statistics. Um, I chose statistics to study for my PhD because, you know, I was always a scientist at heart, but I never really knew what type of science I wanted to do. Like, for example, in, in my undergraduate experience, I worked a little bit analyzing the light from the cosmic microwave background radiation and also tried to develop an optimization algorithm to track a diffusing protein with a laser beam. But I also, you know, in 2006 and 2007, had some experience pipetting cells uh, by hand and doing single cell um, gene expression analysis kind of before it was cool. Um, but now, I, it, you know, because of that experience early on analyzing single cells, I, after I heard about these new um, measurement technologies with droplets and 10x, uh, it, the scale was just so much bigger that it kind of brought me back into uh, this specific type of science. And I'm, I'm really happy with how it's gone so far. Okay, so you came to the Broad Institute. And uh, is this your postdoc? Yes, that's right. I'm a postdoc at the Broad Institute. Um, I'm in Aviv Regev's lab, and I also work closely with Eric Lander. Um, and I'm also co-advised by Philippe Rigolet in the math department of MIT. So I'm curious, does, uh, does Eric uh, do, like, does he continue doing actual science? Because he's, he's the director, right? Yeah. Uh, he, he's probably very busy with the uh, business side of things. Well, actually, a lot of this, uh, a lot of the math here was worked out on the whiteboard with Eric, you know, and we'd, we'd meet, you know, in the evenings or Sunday night, you know, go to his house, you know, he's, he's very involved. He called me on the phone at one point. Um, to like, you know, with some idea and that eventually is how the idea to use optimal transport came out of it was, um, through intense conversations with Eric. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. So can you describe the general sort of problem, the context that, uh, that you're working on? Totally. Yeah. So the, the main idea is that you have a, a developing population of cells, um, and we model this with a, a probability distribution that's changing over time, like a stochastic process. And the main idea is that if you take a random cell from an embryo at some specific time, or say a population of reprogramming cells, then its gene expression is random, but it's random in a different way at different points in time. And Experimentally, we can measure groups of cells, we can measure populations of cells with single cell RNA sequencing at different time points. And the goal is to figure out how this distribution of cells is evolving over time. Now, the key, or the, the key problem is that when you measure a single cell, when you measure its expression profile, you actually have to kill the cells. So you can't physically measure um, all of the genes at once um, in a single cell over time. Now, of course, you could maybe measure fluorescently a few genes over time in a single cell, but with single cell RNA sequencing in droplets, you know, where you can do hundreds of thousands of cells with very high throughput and measure all of the genes, this actually kills the cell. So then mathematically, what we have are a set of samples from this developmental process at one point in time and at another point in time. And so kind of for any point in time, we can sample from this distribution. 
And so at one specific point in time, you could estimate what subpopulations of cells there are, you know, by clustering, or you could maybe, you know, try to get an estimate for the density of this distribution somehow. But the key mathematical problem for us was how can we couple these distributions of cells at two different time points in a meaningful way? So this notion of coupling is kind of an idea from probability theory that if you have two random variables, then what's their dependence? You know, so people are familiar with the idea of kind of correlation, right? Like, you know, the gene expression profile of a cell at one point in time is probably correlated somehow with its expression, you know, one second later, right? So these are, these are not totally independent random variables. So biologically, the cell has some time scale on which its expression is coherent somehow. Um, and so for us, we were trying to figure out the best way to couple the cells at one point in time with the distribution on expression at the next point in time. And this would, this would tell you, like, if you knew this true coupling, it would tell you, given that a cell has some expression profile at one point in time, what are the likely fates that this cell could take? You know, what, uh, where might this cell go in gene expression space from one point in time to the next point in time? And the mathematical tool that we're using for this is called optimal transport. So optimal transport is a way to specify a coupling between two uh, probability distributions that minimizes the total cost of, of the coupling. And the cost is specified in terms of a distance that each uh, cell would have to move. And we should clarify that uh, cells move not spatially, but in the gene expression space. That's a very good point, yes. So you said coupling is a uh, generalization of this notion of like correlation or uh, right. interdependence, right? And another obvious generalization of uh, correlation or interdependence is the joint distribution. But I have a sense that coupling has more information in it than joint distribution. But can you explain the relationship between these two? Yeah, yeah, very good point. Yeah, so coupling is precisely the joint distribution. I should have just said it that way in the first mm -hmm. place. Um, but for us, we actually modify this notion, this fundamental notion, a little bit because we're not actually just dealing with probability distributions, which is what optimal transport classically deals with. We're actually, now this is a, a technical detail, but we're dealing with just distributions, which could have mass different from one. Okay? And... For us, this, this notion of a distribution just captures the probability distribution over gene expression space where cells could be together with the total number of cells that we would have at any given point in time. And so when you say this generalized distribution, which is not probability distribution, right. so the, its its total mass is not one, right? right? Uh, and another, I guess, name for that is measure. So is there a difference between these distributions and measures? No, it is a measure. That's exactly right. Okay. Uh, it's just measure seems to be like a more common term. So was there a reason why you went with distribution? I found a bit confusing juggling between distributions as probability distributions and distributions that are not. Um, no, I mean, these are just kind of semantics, right? So yeah, mathematically, it's a measure. Um, you know, a random variable has a distribution. It also has a cumulative distribution. Um, yeah, but for us, we were, there was also the mass. Yeah, I just use distribution because it seems like a more uh, friendly word. Measure has all this kind of... Mm scary technical stuff associated with it uh, but there's no real like deep measurability issues that we run into in in our stuff okay and so the reason why you don't just restrict yourself to probability distributions is i guess because of cell proliferation because you have to account for like cells dividing is that correct yeah that's exactly right so we modify the notion of a coupling you know we um to include growth. Um, now, just to be completely fair, um, you know, people have done this before. So Linek Shiza uh, has a wonderful paper on uh, unbalanced transport. So he, you know, extended optimal transport to the case where, where the, the measures don't have to necessarily have total mass one. They don't have to be probability measures. And for us, what we did was we, we included this also deterministic notion of, of growth as well in the constraints. And, and this modifies 
the notion of the of the coupling as producing mass locally and also transporting it. Um, so this mm-hmm. this is a nice way to think that you know, given that a cell is at a position in gene expression space, it will have a certain number of descendants, and those descendants will be distributed in a certain way. And so the the coupling for us is is capturing both of those notions. And I guess this uh, growth function models not just cell proliferation but also cell death. Is is that something you have to deal with? That yeah, exactly. We have to deal with with cell death. Um, so the way that we think about this is that birth and death together both affect how many descendants a cell will have at the next point in time. And based on, you know, gene signatures for proliferation or apoptosis, um, you can define some, you know, estimate for how many descendants you think a cell will have. And abstractly, this is, um, the in, this is one of the inputs to our uh, algorithm, is an estimate for how many descendants a cell will have at some arbitrary uh, time in the future. And uh, when you model the cell proliferation and cell death, um, you don't try to infer it from the data, but instead you postulate this growth function that tells you the rate at which uh, cells are growing depending on their uh, gene expression profile. So... Um, what was the uh, rationale behind this? Why not try and infer these events from, from the data itself? So this, the data that we actually have, I mean, that's a good point. So we should, we should base these on, uh, on data. And the version of the paper that's released you know, has, has some estimates for growth and proliferation that we basically just based on kind of biological knowledge, just kind of rough back of the envelope calculations of doubling rates and stuff like that. Um, and you could certainly do something more sophisticated. And, you know, in our, uh, you know, we're actually kind of pushing on that a little bit. Um, but what's not identifiable from the, from the data is kind of the overall rate of growth of all of the cells, because all that we measure at any point in time is the relative abundances of the, of the subpopulations, because we could have we could sample a certain number of cells from this distribution at one point in time, but all we really see are kind of the numbers of samples that land in different regions. You know, um, we don't see kind of the total. But you could you could estimate that by looking at the number of cells in the plates, you know, or something like that. Uh, that's that's a good point. I didn't didn't realize that. So you control how many cells are uh, isolated and and sequenced. It's not it's not a biological quantity so you cannot just infer the the abundance of cells from from just the their count right and in principle there could be some um yeah, some biases in terms of which subpopulations are recovered you know but we're kind of assuming that you're we're sampling from some population and then yeah based on how many cells you collect at some time point you can control how many samples you get at that time point right but your growth function is local, right? It's not that you say, okay, my total population of cells doubled in this period, but you actually try to say, like, depending on where in the gene expression space the cell resides, right? right. You determine this custom growth rate. That's right. So wouldn't that be identifiable if you just said the overall growth rate uh, couldn't you determine from the data what are the growth rates in uh, each patch in this gene expression space? Um, it's a little bit confounded by the fact that the cells are also moving in gene expression space at the same time. So I think in order to explain this, it's going to be helpful if I explain a little bit more about what optimal transport is doing and also how the growth enters into the constraints in optimal transport when we are trying to infer the coupling from one time point to the next. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Okay. So imagine that we have a group of cells at one time point and a group of cells at the next time point. Okay. So we view Mm -hmm. these as distributions on gene expression space and we're inferring their transitions uh, using optimal transport. So optimal transport has 
it's a classical subject in mathematical analysis that goes back hundreds of years all the way to the work of Gaspard Monge in the, in the 1780s, who was using it to design efficient plans to build fortifications and move dirt as efficiently as possible. So for him, the total cost of moving a pile of dirt from some distribution P to another distribution Q was specified by a, um, a transport uh, function. So he actually wanted a deterministic uh, transport um, function that says that you, you take you know, a particle of dirt at position X and you move it to some other position Y. You know? so, so you want to, um, to minimize over all these transport plans. Um, and then, you know, Leonid Kantorovich generalized this, uh, this framework in his study of linear programming in the 1940s by introducing a relaxed version of this problem where you can specify a uh, non-deterministic transport plan, which uh, is more like a, a uh, you know, a non-deterministic coupling of random variables where, you know, given that a random variable X is specified, the distribution of Y is not, it could have some entropy in it. This is the kind of the framework that we're using. We're using kind of a, um, a modern formulation of this problem. You know, we use this to compute the coupling of cells at one time point to the next, okay, in order, in order to minimize the total transport cost. So the transport cost is the, it's defined in terms of some cost function. You know, if it costs... Uh, for example, if the cost is the in, in moving dirt is, the, is uh, defined by the distance that you have to move it times the mass that you have to move. That's the total amount of work, I guess. I guess I don't completely understand the difference between the deterministic and non-deterministic transport plan. So uh, when we work with probability measures, is just a different kind of measure, right? So what what makes it uh, non-deterministic? Okay, so. Um, so imagine you wanted to transport a Gaussian centered at zero to a Gaussian centered at one. Okay. Mm -hmm. Here's two ways to do it. Okay. One is you pick up a point X and you move it to X plus one. And you do this for all X. Each X is sent deterministically to one specific point. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now here's another way to do it. You could pick up this point X and then you could randomly just pick a point Y distributed according to a normal at mean one. And if you did this for each of a bunch of X's, then the distribution of where they were all mapped to would eventually look like a normal with mean one. So mathematically, what does that correspond to? Because when we talk about deterministic transport plan, we have right. just this uh, joint measure right coupling um and then when we move to non-deterministic is that a different mathematical object no so they're both couplings um but the the difference is just if you fix x and look at the um conditional distribution of y given x if that conditional distribution is deterministic then that would be a deterministic transport of X to a specific point Y. With probability 1, right. you would transport X mm -hmm. to a specific point Y equals X plus 1 in the normal example. Okay, got it. Okay, so I've described the concept of optimal transport and its historical background as kind of earth movers distance. Okay, so... Given some cost function, which specifies the cost of moving a unit mass of dirt from position X to position Y, you can search for a transport plan that minimizes the total cost or, or the expected cost. Okay? Mm -hmm. And now modern versions of this uh, involve a bunch of different bells and whistles, all of which are useful to us. So, for example, you can regularize this, um, this objective function by adding a, a regularization term that promotes entropy in the transport map. And uh, this is called entropic regularization. It was developed by, uh, I believe, by Marco Cuturi, although it, most recently, you know, he developed it for algorithmic reasons, and it really speeds up the computations. But this line of thinking actually goes all the way back to Schrodinger, who 
was thinking about uh, relativistic uh, quantum electrodynamics um, from a statistical point of view. And um, imagine, he was imagining that you have N indistinguishable particles. And these indistinguishable particles are all kind of undergoing Brownian motion. And so you observe where they are maybe at one point in time, and then you might observe where they are at the next point in time. So just to review, if you just had a single particle that was undergoing Brownian motion, then the distribution of where it would be at time t is a, a normal or Gaussian uh, random variable with variance that depends on t. It depends on t and also the diffusion constant. Okay, So if the diffusion constant is bigger, it'll be a wider Gaussian. Actually, Schrodinger was considering now the problem where you have a bunch of different particles. Okay, So if you have n indistinguishable particles, you're not really sure which one matches to which one at the next point in time. And so you also have to kind of identify the matching or coupling of these particles. And if you assume that they're undergoing Brownian motion with a diffusion parameter epsilon, then the maximum likelihood coupling of the particles at time you know, zero to the particles at time one is given by an entropically regularized optimal transport problem. Hmm. Yeah, this, this gets confusing because, of course, there is a different but, I guess, related notion of coupling in quantum mechanics, right? Mm, I'm not familiar with that. Or I, I guess they call it entanglement, right? Entangled entanglement. particles. Yeah, sure. Uh, so there's no quantum um, mechanics here. Just to classically assume that they are undergoing Brownian motion. Okay. But it, you just don't know which particle is which. So, you know, if you observed, say, two particles and one was red and one was blue, and you observe them both at time zero, and then you also observe them at time one, then kind of, you would know that the blue one went to the blue one and the red one went to the red one. Um, mm -hmm. And since they were, you wouldn't really know exactly where they were in between. There'd be some distribution over possible paths. And in probability theory, that's called a Brownian bridge. Um, but now, if the particles, instead of being colored red and blue, are all black, then you don't know which black particle at time zero uh gave rise to which black particle at time one. You know, the distribution on all possible paths to go from this set of indistinguishable particles to another set of indistinguishable particles is called a Schrodinger bridge, um, like the extension of a Brownian bridge. And I guess the, uh, the amount of regularization here depends on the time, right? The longer you wait, the more uh, you have to rely on entropy and less on the observation themselves. That's exactly right. Or if the particles are diffusing faster, there would be more entropy in kind of which particle went where. Okay. And so you use this to determine which cells went where. But I, I guess we came here from the discussion of uh, cell growth, right? Exactly. So... So there's a paper by um, from the uh, Conrad uh, Hochtinger's lab on reprogramming, viewing it as kind of a two-state process, okay? Like a, a uh, continuous time Markov process, but with two states. Before that, do you want to introduce uh, this notion of reprogramming if, if someone's not familiar with it? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. One particular developmental process that's kind of, you know, easy to work with and, um, you know, quite reproducible, and but still there's a lot of interesting questions, is this notion of, of cellular reprogramming. And this is the data set that we are actually working with in our paper. Uh, so in 2007, Yamanaka uh, in, introduced these uh, these four factors that you you can use to kick a cell out of its comfort zone and reprogram the cell from one stable equilibrium in gene expression space into another stable equilibrium in gene expression space. So you can change the type of a cell by giving it a virus that induces the expression of some genes. Now, in our, in our data, we, we were using uh, secondary mouse embryonic fibroblasts. So uh, we actually had kind of a genetically 
pure mouse that already had all of these viruses already in the genome, and we could turn on these、uh, we could turn on these genes with a small molecule named doxycycline. So if we if we give the cells doxycycline, then they start reprogramming, and then、um, it takes about two weeks for them to reprogram. But not all of the cells can go in the in the same direction. Not all of them successfully reprogram. Some of them die, and some of them turn into neurons, and some of them look like they turn into placental cells. So there's kind of some branching process going on, you know. And at any point in time, a cell's fate might be partially or or fully specified. And so this kind of branching phenomenon, we're trying to ca- capture these cell fates with the transport maps, okay? And、um, I was about to explain cell growth and how we include that in the、uh, transport maps, and also how we how we specify our growth rates. Okay, so let me first explain how we include growth in the、um, in the optimization problem. Okay, so so what we have we have a, a convex optimization problem, and the optimization variable. Is this coupling matrix okay? So if we actually have a finite number of samples from these distributions, we can set up this finite dimensional optimization problem, right? In general, a coupling is this infinite dimensional measure that could couple one distribution to another distribution. But given a finite number of samples, say n samples at time point one and m samples at time point two,、um, then we can form the empirical Probability distributions at these two time points, and then solve for the optimal optimal empirical coupling between these two、uh, empirical distributions. So that's actually just growth aside. That's how you can set up an a、uh, optimal transport problem between two empirical probability distributions. Now, in the presence of growth,、um, optimal transport might do something funny, and it, to see why. Here's here's kind of one picture that you could think about. Imagine that you have a mixture of two subpopulations of cells, and at you know one point in time, say they exist kind of in equal numbers, okay? And then at the next point in time, suppose subpopulation one is growing kind of more rapidly in the inter in the intervening time, and so that when you when you sub when you sample from this Distribution at at the next point in time, you obtain an unequal mixture. Say population one has、um, has doubled in size, then many more cells will be in subpopulation one at the next point in time. And and if optimal transport didn't know about this, it has conservation of mass fundamentally built into it. So it would actually steal some cells from population, you know. The second subpopulation and and teleport those over、uh, instead of kind of allowing subpopulation A to give rise to subpopulation A, but and and also grow、um, and subpopulation B to give rise to subpopulation B and also move and grow.、Uh, and so this this notion of growth is something that we included in our、um, in our optimization framework by modifying the constraints of the optimization problem.、Um, So the constraints of the optimization problem, classically, are just that this、uh, this coupling has to be a doubly stochastic matrix,、um, which just means that the coupling is a joint distribution that has kind of the prescribed marginals. Yeah. So the、uh, the sum within rows and columns、uh, are constant or equal to one. Should be one. Yeah. Exactly. Should be one.、Um, and you know, people use optimal transport in this context to. To match, you know, one group to another group. But now, if the objects themselves are allowed to grow, you know, so you might want to match one object to, say, two objects at the next time point if it's doubling in size. So yeah, we just modify the constraints in exactly that way, right? So we we just say that each cell is going to give rise, on average, to a certain number of cells at the next time point, and then we take that into account when we're matching the cells and.、Um, Yeah. So basically, we, we we modify the amount of mass that's coming out of each、uh, cell, and that just amounts to rescaling the empirical distribution at the first time point, so that there's non-uniform weights on all of the cells. 
Right. Um, but the growth function uh, is given by you. It's, it's fixed, yes. right? As opposed to making part of the optimization problem itself, like trying to estimate. Because uh, in the example you gave where we have this uh, mixture of two cell populations, mm-hmm. um, of course, the optimal transport might uh, assign or transfer some of the cells from population one or subpopulation one to subpopulation two. Mm-hmm. But there could also be some cost associated with this. And right. I, I imagine it would be possible to set up this optimization problem. I have no idea how tractable it is uh, or how much yeah. data one needs to, to estimate everything. Yeah, actually, in theory, I don't think it's identifiable uh, because just from population measurements. So if you just have one distribution, you know, if you imagine that there's actually a stochastic process, okay, Mm -hmm. I like to call this actually a birth death transport process, because it's like a, uh, the classical concept of a birth death process describes the number of individuals in a population over time, right? And like a pure birth process, for example, is uh, one example of that is like a Poisson process, where you know you have births arriving at some rate, you know if there's some in some infinitesimal amount of time delta t, you know the probability of a birth is specified at some parameter beta and a death is specified by some parameter delta. Then you know the number of individual, the expected number of individuals um, over time is you know e to the negative, sorry e to the beta minus delta times time. That's a classical notion of a birth death process, but. Um, we're kind of working with this concept of a birth-death transport process, okay? So this, this birth-death transport process um, allows cells to move and grow and also transport. Cells from a subpopulation can, uh, can you know, give rise to different numbers of cells. And I think estimating the, the growth rates is certainly kind of a, a fundamental, uh, will have a fundamental impact on kind of the, the quality but we have this with this knob that we can tune in the in the algorithm, which actually specifies kind of how confident we are in our estimate of the growth rates, and that's where the unbalanced transport comes into play. It, it, that, and that was developed by Linek Shiza, who, who I mentioned earlier. He's a fantastic uh, graduate student now postdoc in uh, France. Um, with, he was working with Francis Bach um, for his postdoc. So yeah, we do have to specify the the growth rates in advance um, and. I think they could be measured, you know, easily with some additional data, and and identifying the growth rates of subpopulations is kind of a a, a smaller problem in some sense than the entire problem of figuring out which cell goes where, you know. Okay, um, yeah, I, I I see what you're saying. Uh, I'll I'll make a final attempt to pitch this yeah. idea to you. Um, sure. So I I guess what what I'm saying is that if you measure this process on a uh, very fine time scale, mm-hmm. then you can tell. So, for example, you have your two subpopulations that are sufficiently right. far enough, right? And if you assume that your uh, time step is small enough, then you can be reasonably sure that these two clusters, they uh, remain apart. And so whatever yes. uh, quantitative changes are within those clusters, so one cluster got bigger, the other one uh, got smaller, that corresponds to your uh, growth or or death. Yes, and I agree. In that setting, I completely agree. Uh, and since you didn't take this route, I guess that your time step is not fine enough to, to make these assumptions? Um, you know, we, we used stuff like this to give kind of a, a rough order of magnitude and just inform our, our estimates of the growth rates. So... Your intuition is completely right. You know, if you have well-separated subpopulations, then your the transport problem then is kind of trivial in some sense. You know, you basically have um, two basically decoupled processes that are proceeding in parallel. You know, so this yeah, is kind of a, yeah, a, a very a very easy version of the problem. But this doesn't wor- this wouldn't work well in kind of the you know in and around branch points where the process is you know doing some very complicated stuff. Yeah. So in general, you know, our method will rely, our method does rely on having a rough estimate of how much cells with different signatures will proliferate in the, in the intervening time intervals. Okay. 
Another related question that I wanted to ask is, so you sort of juggle between discrete uh, entities like discrete distributions and and discrete cells and and continuous stuff. So one mm-hmm. instance is that your growth rate is continuous, right? But but then your distribution is uh, just a set of discrete points. How do you reconcile those two things? Yeah, there's actually a very nice, elegant theory that I'm I'm kind of building up in the meantime since publish since posting the. Uh, empirical work. Um, and this theory is for these birth death transport processes. Okay. So like imagine that you have a stochastic process, um, indexed by some continuous time. Um, and also it's a distribution on, it's could be a continuous distribution on gene expression space. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now this is kind of some population level quantity that if we had infinite data, um, maybe we would have access to, and suppose it has some true coupling between time points, okay? So let's say we call the true coupling from time t to time s gamma of ts. So gamma of ts would describe the, um, the full true joint distribution between a random cell at time t and a random cell at time s. Now, another population level quantity is the optimal transport coupling between times t yeah. and time s. And this is another quantity that we can't actually compute uh, because we only have a finite amount of data. But this is the the cup. This is the coupling on the true distribution at time t to the true distribution at time s that minimizes the cost. You know, and there could be entropy regularization and other fancy stuff like that too. But this is a, the so defined in terms of the solution to an infinite dimensional optimization problem. Now, given empirical distributions. You know, it's well known that, for example, the mean of an empirical distribution will converge to the mean of the um, the population, right? Like the the law of large numbers specifies this rate of convergence, and the central limit theorem specifies kind of the fluctuations that you would see in any finite sample. Yeah, if you increase the sample size. Exactly. So as you increase the sample size, the fluctuations will you know converge at one on square root of n or something like that. Um, and this is like a, a parametric rate because here the mean is a parametric quantity. And it's actually kind of well understood that transport maps that you define on empirical distributions will asymptotically converge to this population level transport, optimal transport map. Mm. So, so the empirical transport maps that we compute from our discrete, you know, finite data sets will in some sense converge to this true optimal, not, sorry, not the true coupling, but the, the optimal transport coupling given infinite data. And uh, the, the magnitude of their fluctuations and their um, theoretical properties is something I'm, I'm working out now uh, in collaboration with Philippe Rigolet and um, uh, Jonathan Weed and Linek Shiza. Now it's a separate question as to, now here's kind of the key modeling assumption is that for this stochastic process, in order to try to estimate the coupling, we're making the modeling assumption that the true coupling, this uh, gamma, is close to this optimal transport coupling. Yeah, and that's kind of the key modeling assumption. And uh, but it, I actually think it's a a, uh, a fairly natural modeling assumption um, because it basically assumes away all of the stuff that would not be identifiable. And by that, I mean these uh, kind of stationary dynamics. So if you want, I can give you a better idea for the types of dynamics that may or may not be identifiable from population level, like just sampling from a distribution at different points in time. Before that, so I'm trying to understand. So I understand that given the stochastic process, the true coupling is, of course, like a well-defined entity, but the Mm -hmm. uh, optimal transport like, doesn't it depend on uh, what your time step is? Because if the time step is long enough, mm-hmm. then it's it's hard to draw any any connection because exactly everything right. sort of yeah. moved, moved around. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, so I meant to say that on very short time scales, the um, optimal transport coupling might agree with the true coupling. So you can think of this stochastic process just as kind of a point describing a curve in the plane and the optimal transport coupling 
is in some sense a geodesic or a straight line in yeah. in distribution space. And so the optimal transport coupling, so if we assume that a stochastic process is doing optimal transport on short timescales, it means that this curve that it's making can be approximated by, on very short length scales here, by little piecewise linear line segments, you know, uh, by some... Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and as you point out, on large timescales, you're exactly right that this is not reasonable. Okay. Yeah, so you were talking about the parts that are not identifiable. Right. So now imagine that you have some, uh, some stationary dynamics. So what do I mean by stationary dynamics? I mean that suppose you have a, a distribution that's actually not changing over time. But the individual particles, the individual cells are changing over time. For example, suppose the cells are all doing the cell cycle. You know, or hematopoiesis is another kind of classical example of the entire system is more or less at in equilibrium, but the uh, individual cells are uh, going from some stem cell state to some uh, eventually fully differentiated state uh, and then maybe dying uh, along the way. Um, so if you just think about a distribution on the plane, just to, to get a very concrete mathematical example, suppose we just have a, a distribution on the circle and um, the cells are spiraling around in a circular pattern, but at all points in time, you might just have the uniform distribution on the circle. So you wouldn't be able to tell just from, sa- you know, even if you got infinite data, right? The, the samples at each point in time, you would get samples from this uniform distribution on the circle. Uh, mm-hmm. But if they were independent samples, even with infinite data, you would see very well that you definitely have the distribution on the circle, but you wouldn't be able to estimate the coupling at all. And actually, optimal transport would uh, make kind of a simplifying assumption that the tr- this uh, coupling is actually totally stationary. So the points are actually not going anywhere. Um, so that's what the optimal transport coupling would give you in that specific example and it wouldn't agree with the truth even if you looked at very short time scales right but that assuming that it's perfectly uniform because if you have any noise you will be able to observe that the noise moves around the circle as well exactly yeah if you had a just one slice of the pie that pie slice would kind of circle around um yeah but those would be um non-stationary dynamics then right the, the distribution would be changing over time i guess so I'm thinking if your distribution is stationary, right, but then you're working with the samples from the distribution, samples are noisy, and right. wouldn't you be able to observe that noise in the samples while the underlying distribution remains stationary? Um, so let's see. So in the setting where you're sampling from the entire uniform distribution on the circle, I agree that at each point in time, you would have a different empirical distribution. But as you get more and more data, that empirical distribution would converge to the uniform distribution. And so um, it would actually be stationary in that sense. And so you, um, I, I don't think you could just leverage the noise to, uh, to learn the dynamics in, in that simple example, at least. Mm. Yeah, may- maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Right. So we were talking about uh, the, the connection between the the continuous stuff and the discrete stuff and you're saying that the discrete optimal transport that we get from the empirical distribution should converge to the um, idealized optimal right. transport and then the the question becomes whether um, the idealized optimal transport is close enough to the underlying right. uh, stochastic process. Uh, but in the practical implementation, how do you reconcile the continuous growth with the discrete distribution? So, for, for example, if your growth function tells right. you that the, the cell at this point in space grew by 20%. Yeah, good point. So the way that we do this is um, we specify, you know, some kind of uh, prior distribution on how much we expect a cell to grow. Um, and that's in terms of the birth and death rate. And then you, we just kind of subtract those and exponentiate it. And that gives kind of the expected numbers of descendants that that cell should have. 
And then the uh, algorithm tries to match that as well as possible, but it doesn't, uh, it's not required to match it exactly. And also because the, uh, the transport has some entropy to it, you know, so if, it's, if a cell is really going to transition to one specific point, you know, if it's not going to divide, it will just have, it'll give rise to one cell at the next time point if it doesn't die. And if we're not exactly sure which of our cells is the best representative, you know, if we're not sure which of our cells is the best kind of putative descendant of that cell, then the algorithm will spread some probability mass over some, you know, kind of cells that we see at the next time point. So there's kind of, en there's entropy in the transitions of a single cell for biological reasons in the sense that, you know, a, a single cell will, may not have a totally specified fate. And then it really makes sense to have kind of 50% of its mass, you know, in, in one place and 50% of its mass in another place. But then also just for purely technical reasons, we might, you know, put some transport mass on a little cluster of cells surrounding, hopefully surrounding where the true uh, descendant might have been if we'd measured it, you know. Just to specifically answer your question about the continuous growth rates though, right? Like if we say a cell is going to give rise to 1.72 cells at the next time point, what does that mean? Is that your question? Yeah, I guess it makes more sense if you think about like very dense clusters when you can expect that if if your uh, growth rate is 1.72, then that percentage of um, cells will divide, right? It, it makes less sense if you consider an isolated point in the gene expression space mm. where... Um, there may not be 1.72 cells to map to it. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but again, we we're just sampling, right? So in right. the actual biological process, there there are probably enough cells, right? Yeah, and and this is so one point seven two is kind of the expected growth rate, right? And mm -hmm. and that means that maybe it gives rise to two, and that's a little bit more likely than it give rise giving rise to one descendant, but it could also die, you know, or give rise to three descendants. But um, yeah, we kind of think of that as the expected number of descendants. And so that's how much mass we hand a cell. So we say, okay, you are you specific cell are responsible for uh, allocating 1.72 uh, mass of descendants at the next time point. Um, and then we take this distribution at the next time point, and we say, okay, we saw you know uh, 5,371 cells at at this next time point. And then we say, okay, given that we had this many cells at the first time point we scale that number up by the overall average growth rate of all the cells at the first time point, okay? Mm -hmm. So if there's an overall growth rate of two, then we'll have roughly 10,000 um, total, sorry, I actually said that um, a little bit incorrectly, right? So like it, we take the number of cells at the first time point and we scale it up by the average growth rate and that determines kind of the total number of cells you know, the total number of seats we have to fill at the next time point. Okay. So I'm thinking about this degenerate example. Maybe I'm doing it wrong by concentrating on the degenerate example. Okay. But if we have this isolated point, uh, right. you get only one sample from this patch in the mm -hmm. gene expression space. And it is just one point at time zero and just one point at time one. Uh, but the equation tells you that uh, it produced 0.72 offspring. Uh, right. Will you move this mass elsewhere or, or will you just say that, okay, the expected growth is this, so I'll just assign greater mass to that isolated point? Yeah, so we would probably throw the extra mass away because we're doing unbalanced transport. So unbalanced transport, it, it actually takes the constraints of the optimization problem. Now remember, we modified the constraints to include growth, but in classical transport, these are equality constraints, you know? Like you're looking for a doubly stochastic matrix whose rows sum precisely to one. And then now we just modified that aspect of it so that the rows don't have to all sum to the same number, but they should all sum to something. But then the final layer of it is that we relax these equality constraints to KL divergence terms in the objective function. So the overall objective becomes 
we want to minimize the total transport cost, plus we want to promote the fact that each cell has roughly as many descendants as we think it should. In, in, in precisely in terms of this, uh, this KL term in Kolbeck-Leibler divergence term in the objective function. Interesting. So yeah, I thought when you said that this is an unbalanced transport problem, I thought by that you meant that you have this uh, growth factor, but you actually, there's an additional imbalance in that you don't even try to match that exactly. That's right. Yeah. And uh, so that's right. So Lenek Shiza invented uh, unbalanced transport in the kind of the abstract sense. And then we applied it here, you know, with our inclusion of growth rates to just say that we don't have to know the growth rates exactly. And each cell doesn't have to give rise to exactly as, as many descendants as we say it should. So it's okay if it throws away a little mass here or there or, you know, gains a little extra mass here or there. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. Okay, I think we wandered enough in the mathematical weeds. So okay. let's, let's talk a bit about the biological applications and implications uh, of this okay. uh, method. Maybe we'll start by what your input data looks like. So we mentioned that you get single cell um, gene expression data at some time uh, slices. So w what is your actual time step that you use in your experiments? Good. Yeah. So um, this reprogramming process starts out with uh, mouse embryonic fibroblasts at day zero. And, you know, we have 10 time points over the course of 16 days, and we have 65,000 total cells um, with between, you know, five and 7,000 data points at each time point, um, with the expect exception of one of the time points that didn't have any uh, biological, it only had one biological replicate. So that time point actually only has about 1,100 uh, cells at that, uh, you know, at that day 11. So yeah, in general, we have um, between five and 7,000 cells at each time point spaced uh, one or two days apart. Okay. And uh, then you apply this uh, algorithm that infers the, the transport map. So how do you visualize or how do you interpret that data then? Right. So given our transport map, what we can do is we can look at the descendants or ancestors of any individual cell or any population of cells. So basically, there's a row of this transport map for each cell at one time point and a column uh, for each cell at the next time point. And so what a, a specific row tells you is the, uh, the distribution of descendants. So the, the total sum of the row tells you the, the number of descendants that cell was actually allocated by the algorithm, you know, and we uh, rerun this uh, several times with different, you know, regularization parameters until we see that, you know, our constraints are kind of 90% correlated with uh, the growth rates that, you know, that we input. Um, so the input and output growth rates are kind of, you know, correlated to some extent. Yeah. And then we interpret these uh, transport maps as telling us, you know, given a cell at one point in time, you can compute its descendants immediately at the next point in time. And then you can also take those descendants and push them again through the uh, transport map um, further and further into the future. Or you can look at the ancestors all the way uh, back into the past over multiple time steps by just composing uh, the transport maps from the, the appropriate time intervals. Right. So you can uh, say for a given cell type, you can say uh, what its possible fates are and how likely it, it is to go uh, to those fates. Right. And how do you present this in a way that's comprehensible to like <laughs> mere humans? <laughs> yeah, so the sequence of transport maps is a little bit hard to digest. What we do is we, one thing we do is we visualize the the landscape of the cells. So my wonderful collaborator, uh, Marcin Tabka, has this uh, beautiful technique to visualize the cells using the, the force layout embedding. And this is kind of one of the, the key figures in our paper. And it, basically, every figure in the paper uses this visualization of all of the cells laid out as a two-dimensional landscape, right? So that's how we just visualize 
that's how we visualize all of the data, right? And then you can annotate this landscape with signatures. So, you know, which cells are expressing any individual gene, which is maybe corrupted by dropout. So maybe you only get a few cells expressing or which collection of cells are expressing, you know, some collection of genes in a gene signature. Or, you know, given any uh, group of cells, you know, what does the descendant distribution, uh, which is, you know, a finite discrete distribution on the cells from the next time point, you know, what does that probability distribution look like? Um, so which regions of gene expression are you more or less likely to go to? You know, we can also cluster all of the cells and reduce these large transport maps to summaries that say, you know, what's the the total mass coming from one cluster at this time point and going to another cluster at the next time point. And, you know, we can see like in terms of these clusters, you know, so maybe there's one cluster of cells that's very relevant. So the, the successfully reprogrammed cells, you know, so which cells are more likely to give rise to those, you know, so we have a bunch of different ways to analyze these transport maps that we outline in our paper. Yeah. So you mentioned that uh, this uh, helps you derive regulatory models and, and gene modules. Yeah, so that's a, an interesting way. That, that's one way that we can also try to summarize the transport probabilities. Um, and the most general framework is you know, this uh, idea of learning a regulatory model. Um, but kind of the simplest uh, way to think about it is just like consider iPS cells as a destination, induced pluripotent stem cells, and ask which cells at the previous time point are most likely to go there and which cells at the previous time point are least likely to go there. And then given those two classes, what are some genes that are helpful in discriminating between those two classes? And then we, um, you know, maybe those genes are involved somehow in the reprogramming process. Now these, these regulatory modules are kind of one step um, more sophisticated than that. So for the regulatory models, we assume that there is some kind of uh, differential equation, and that's governing the growth and, this, and the transport. I mean, it's actually governing the transport. So, um, so suppose if a, gene ex if a cell has some gene expression profile X at time T, then maybe it has some rate of change X dot. You know? So dx dt is F of X. Where X is this whole expression vector? Exactly, yeah. So X is a 20,000-dimensional vector, and uh, we're trying to estimate the function that defines some differential equation that specifies how the cells evolve over time. And obviously, this is a very high-dimensional problem, so we, we have regularization and stuff, but how do you actually set up some regression to learn this function F? So a priori, it seems quite hard because we don't have paired samples, right? We don't have any coupled samples. The, the generic thing in machine learning or, or statistics um, to solve a regression problem, you generally have like xi comma yi pairs, and you want to say y equals f of x, maybe plus noise. So in our framework, we, we say like, um, first we solve the transport problem, and then we, given a cell X at one point in time, we can sample likely descendants of that cell and then set up this regression framework to try to learn this function F from these data that we generate from our transport maps. And this F is this uh, regulatory model that we learn. And, it, it, you know, we have these regulatory uh, modules. These, these modules just come from the the specific, you know, functional form that we give for X as a low rank linear function. Ah, interesting. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. That's very cool. Um, I guess the other thing that people do in this space, which is um, probably much uh, simpler and more limited, uh, but we often hear about pseudotime. So how, right. how does this compare to pseudotime analysis? I wouldn't say pseudotime is simpler or more limited. You know, it's, so pseudotime analysis, you know, this is at the very core of, of all the issues. So pseudotime analysis is the version of this problem where you don't have these explicit temporal labels, Yeah. right? So I, I talked earlier about stationary and non-stationary processes, right? So the pseudotime approaches are entirely designed for the potentially stationary setting, 
Whereas our approach couldn't hope to work for the stationary setting, like I described earlier. And actually, even more than that, it, based, it essentially assumes that all of the stationary stuff is basically zero. So, I mean, put differently, it, it just returns to you the purely non-stationary components of the dynamics yeah. that are driving the process. So the pseudo-time methods might hope to learn even the, the dynamics leading to stationary, you know, a stationary sequence of distributions where the distributions are the same at all. You know, if you only have one time point, um, then your, defin- your distribution is just kind of stationary. Like in hematopoiesis, for example, you, you don't have labeled uh, time points. So I, I see this as a uh, kind of a purely complementary approach to the, to the suite of pseudo-time methods where we're entirely going after these, uh, these purely non-stationary components of the dynamics. Yeah, I guess uh, what I meant was if you, as, a, as you say, if you have just one time point or if you have measurements at very uh, long time scales or if you have uh, maybe unrelated measurements in like unrelated organisms, then you don't have this temporal correlation and you can sort of assume that this is a stationary distribution, but it gives you much less data to work with. Whereas if you sample at high frequency, uh, then you get uh, much more data. And so you presumably can uh, make stronger or more interesting conclusions from that. Would that be fair to say? Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's fair to say. But I mean, if you have more data, that's always better, though, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so what's the uh, current status of, of the software? Is it released? Like if someone wants to try it out, can they do that? Yeah. So we have a... Uh, we have a version kind of 0.1 of the software package and it's um it's available on github we haven't kind of made some giant public announcement of it yet and that's because it's still at the stage where it needs a little bit of help but if people are interested in taking a look it's at the stage where you know you kind of use use at your own peril but also with help from us you know so it's um (laughs) it's it's under rapid development though you know so um yeah, it's on GitHub as um, WOT, like for Waddington Optimal Transport, on the, the Broad Institute GitHub website. Uh, what's it written in? Uh, it's in Python. Mm-hmm. And so to finish our discussion of the biological application, is it simply an exploratory tool or did it actually lead you to any conclusions, you know, uh, any new biological knowledge, so to say? Yeah, so the the main um, biological knowledge that came out of this, st- one of the um, the main kind of pieces of kind of pseudo validation for the method um, also is came from the regulatory modules. So we we looked for cells that were kind of more likely to transition to iPS cells, and we also fit this um, this uh, regulatory function f and we saw some list of genes that looked kind of very important. So, so, so kind of the top genes that were most likely to drive you in that direction of successful reprogramming. And then we experimentally checked this list. This part was done by Jian Shu, who's the, you know, another one of my wonderful collaborators. And he was kind of the, one of the central driving forces of this project um, kind of, you know, from its inception. So, so Jian experimentally validated this, uh, this gene OBOX6. We saw that it increased the probability dramatically that cells would actually successfully reprogram. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and the analysis also brought this up as one of the, the top genes that were most important in driving you towards successful reprogramming. Yeah, so in that sense, it's, um, it is kind of a tool for exploratory data analysis, right? Just kind of by definition, uh, but it, it's also kind of useful and can help shed light on various processes like uh, like reprogramming. But it's also, uh, we hope that it's generally useful. And um, a bunch of people in the Broad are starting to use it for a number of different things. So that's exciting. Cool. I also wanted to, to ask you, like, how, how did you first find out about optimal transfer? Like, was it a part of your toolbox already or i think you mentioned that eric also contributed to this right it was a his idea yeah. um 
No, it was my idea to specifically consider optimal transport. Um, but it came out of a conversation with Eric. So I was aware of optimal transport just generally for my, my training in theoretical statistics. Mm-hmm. Um, and also uh, I'd learned about it recently through conversations with Philippe, just kind of abstractly, you know, he had a kind of a group, uh, reading, a reading group on optimal transport. So optimal transport was on my mind, um, just, but just for kind of purely theoretical reasons. And then out of conversations with Eric, we were thinking about, you know, oh, if you had a school of fish and they were swimming, you know, and then you didn't know which fish was which, you know, so how would you, how would you see um, how to connect them to their versions at the next time point? And at one point, you know, Eric had an idea, oh, maybe we can do something with some doubly stochastic matrix. Uh, and so he, he called me on the phone to, to announce this idea. And I, at that point, I immediately said, oh, this sounds a lot like optimal transport. You know, maybe something like that could be useful. Um, and then so I started reading more about optimal transport and some of the, the recently developed algorithms uh, to do it. And at first it wasn't working very well because we didn't realize that we had to use these growth rates. Um, so I, I learned just from doing some examples with mixtures of Gaussians moving around in two dimensions that these growth rates were going to become pretty important. And then during the time, you know, about around the same time when I was doing these uh, simulations with mixtures of Gaussians, Lenek, uh, she's up, put his paper on unbalanced transport online as well. And, and then so I realized we could use that to actually solve this numerically very quickly in an unbalanced transport framework, as opposed to just kind of a kind of hard constraints framework, like ordinary optimal transport. Ah, very interesting. Do you think this will become like the new hot thing? Like we had neural networks <laughs> that like everyone ignored for a long time and now they're yeah. the new hotness. So do you think uh, there will be an increased interest? Yeah, I mean, certainly in the statistics community, like it, uh, it is kind of a, a fairly hot topic. Optimal transport is, uh, you know, there's there's a uh, w- workshop entirely devoted to optimal transport in um in Overvolfach, which is like a, a mathematical research uh, conference setting. And um, so in the, in the theoretical statistics community, it's certainly picking up. And, um, you know, I kind of see this as one of the first, or the first major application of optimal transport in biology and also to time series uh, data. You know, so I think this framework of estimating um, the couplings of stochastic processes from independent measurements could have applications, you know, in a, in diverse scientific settings, um, like anytime you have a stochastic process. And, um, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed working on this, on this project because, you know, coming from a theoretical statistics background, I don't have to leave behind the math entirely, but also, um, it seems to have, you know, be starting to have like big impacts also in single cell RNA sequencing, especially in the, the, um, the time series setting, which I think is also an important direction for single cell analysis in the future is more kind of temporal analysis because, you know, we really, it is very natural to consider temporal processes, you see, especially in developmental biology, you know, it's all centered around the concept of a uh, developmental temporal progression. So yeah, I, I hope that this will be, you know, a big thing <laughs> in the years to come. Awesome. All right, we've been chatting for a while. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to mention before we wrap up? Um, no, you know, this is a great conversation. I really enjoyed, um, you know, talking with you. Yeah, Jeffrey, I enjoyed it too. And I hope our listeners will as well. Thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. 